Welcome, welcome, geeks and nerds, girls and boys, to another brand new edition of geek to me Radio, episode 297. Today we have New York Times bestselling author Brad Meltzer talking about his new book in the Zig and Nola trilogy. Later on we'll talk with director John Glenn, the only man to direct five James Bond movies all about his career. All that and more coming up right now. Stand by. Hello to you. Thank you for being longtime listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Geek to Me Radio. I am your host, James Enstall. For those of you who might be brand new, welcome to you as well. Hopefully, you've uh, found us through our social media platforms on Twitter, Instagram, or maybe you've listened to our live weekly show on the Big 550 KTRS and you decided to tune in to this special online only edition. I've had so much content lately that I haven't had a chance to push it all out on the live show. So uh, we used to do this for quite a while, two shows a week, one online and one live, but uh, I kind of, it fell off the wagon. It kind of just, we, we were kind of good doing okay, but now I've got a glut of content. We need to get it out there. And I wanted to get these two interviews out so you could hear them because they're great interviews with two phenomenally talented people. Uh, that being said, my first guest, no stranger to anybody who reads period, because the guy has done it all. A very talented author, New York Times bestseller, Brad Meltzer, joins the show right now. I'm delighted to be here with my next guest. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's also an Eisner Award-winning comic writer. We'll get into that a little bit later as well. Uh, I could go on the list of accolades, but that would eat up our entire interview time. The great Brad Meltzer, welcome to St. Louis. Uh, thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So, so many places we could start the interview. Um, best place to start, happy anniversary. I understand this is your wedding anniversary. I, how sad am I that <laughs> I'm on book tour on my wedding anniversary, but my wife, I did clear with her, just to be honest, uh, and I said, I can come home and end the tour early. She said, it's a Friday night. Go and have your book tour, and I'll see you Saturday. So tomorrow morning, my flight is not arrive at the airport. It is a 5.30 a.m. flight. Oh. I will be there at like 4.30 in the morning, determined that I will get home uh, before anybody wakes up, so I will make it. So I was, That's what I was going to ask. Do you have another stop? Because you've been all over. You've been to Florida, Texas, Ohio, Iowa last night. This is kind of a whirlwind tour for you. It is. Uh, book tour is exactly like being a rock and roll star tour, but it just has uh, less groupies, less drugs, less money, less people, um, but far more introverts. So, because it's books, and God bless us all. And you want to worry about your hearing going after you hit, like, you know, the next couple of years That's with great. all the rock star tour. You just go blind from reading and <laughs> squinting and realizing at middle age you need reading glasses, yes. 
And for your age, it's amazing. You would think you've been looking at your litany of uh, works and accolades and awards. You think you've been writing for four years. I mean, Legendary could aptly apply to you with all the things you've created and worked on. And you're still young for a author who's had all the experiences and done all the stuff you've done. You know, I've just been very lucky. When I was in my 20s, I wrote about 20-year-olds. When I was in my 30s, I wrote about married people. When I had kids, I started writing kids' books. Um, and now I wrote with the lightning rod, Zig and Nola are, you know, Zig is this character who believes if you want the world to be a better place, use kindness. It's a beautiful idea. It's a naive idea, but it's an idea worth fighting for. And Nola believes that if you want the world to make sense, you grab it by the throat and you force it to make sense. And that's also a good idea. It's a dangerous idea, but together, neither of them will ever get what they want. Mm. And, and, you know, what you're seeing is not just two characters that I unleash on a murder mystery and let them solve the murder. What you're seeing is my own view trying to figure out which of them is right. I do believe you use kindness and that's how you make the world a better place. I also believe that if you see injustice, that you better fight like nobody else. And all you're seeing in these books, decade after decade after decade, is just me trying to grapple with whatever I'm grappling with in mm. my own life. Mm. And with The Lightning Rod, this is the second of the Ziganola series. The first one, obviously, The Escape Artist, immediate New York Times bestseller. Was there the plan to have a series of these, or do you kind of put out the first book, great success, we're going to go ahead and do another one? Do you have ideas percolating like four or five books out for Ziganola? You know, I, I, I knew, I, in fact, before The Escape Artist came out, I was already starting, I had already started The Lightning Rod. Hmm. So... I just I just like the characters. And I think, you know, I, I, for me, I learned it from Superman and Batman, right? Superman and Batman persist for these, you know, 80-something years because they're so deep as characters that you can scratch. No matter how deep you scratch, you'll always find something new. Yeah. And the reality was is, I, I, being honest with myself, I hadn't ever created a character like that. I just put a character in a scenario. I give them a problem. They would solve the problem. The story would be over. And I realized... You know, that character doesn't need another adventure, but Zig and Nola do because they're, they're, there's something deeper about them. You know, Zig is a mortician at Dover Air Force Base. He'll spend 12 hours rewiring someone's jaw and smoothing it over with clay because a family wants to see their, their, their dead son one last time. Rebuilding someone's hand from scratch because a mother says she wants to hold her son's mm. hand one last time. And he doesn't do these things because he wants to. He does because he needs to. He lost his own daughter. He'll never, ever have her back. And, he, you know, we think that morticians are there for the dead. They don't serve the dead. They serve the living. Mm. They try to give us that one thing you never really get when you lose someone close to you, which is closure. And Nola is the U.S. Army's artist-in-residence. And this is true. The, since World War I, the U.S. Army has had a painter, an actual artist on staff, who paints disasters as they happen, whether it's storming the beaches of Normandy, whether it's... Uh, 9-11, Vietnam, anything in between and around, they will go there. I'm like, you're telling me the government has... Everyone's <laughs> racing in with guns blazing, and you got someone who's racing in with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets? That guy's crazy. I got to meet him. I want to meet him. And they said, you mean her. You want to meet hmm. her. And I realized in that moment, I have my character. She's, you know, people have compared her to the girl with the dragon tattoo, which is totally yeah. unfair, but it's a... We'll take that compliment any day. But <laughs> Nola, what I love about her is... Um, she will never stop. She will never stop. And, and, and I think that they're like this dysfunctional. You know, we all have dysfunctional families. Right. And then we build new families, and they're dysfunctional too. But it doesn't mean they can't be beautiful. And, mm -hmm. and, and so Zig will never have what he wants. 
He'll never have his daughter back. Nola will never have the family she wants. She was thrown away as a kid like garbage. But together, they have to knit together this kind of dysfunctional family. And it's a great character development, too, because you have these broken people who they find a connection together and they're able to work together. That's, I think that's maybe one of the reasons your this book series in particular, but your books resonate so well with people. Everyone feels broken inside, and that's kind of something that everyone can relate to on a certain level of the character. Listen, I, I, you know, there's this everyone is walking around with something that they're dealing with that we have no idea about. Every single person that you encounter is like mm-hmm. that. And and I think, you know, our heroes always reflect who we are. And, it, you know, if you, it's funny, if you, you know, just to stay in the geek theme for a moment, if you look at Batman through the ages and you look at Superman through the ages, they're always reflections of how we are dealing with a society. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm fascinated by the idea that, you know, for a while, Batman was like the, you know, the, the funny kind of Adam West Batman. And then he was the dark, dark knight, you know, and then it was the grim and gritty Batman. And, and it's interesting to me because I feel like now, and again, this is overstating things a little bit, but I do think it's true. Our most recent take on Batman that people are exploring in modern comics is that he's totally crazy. Yeah. He's the crazy one, right? That's the new kind of modern, and it's been around for a while now, but the idea that, like, you must be nuts to dress up like a bat. And I personally think that, that heroes like that and stories like that, it's not Batman. It's how we're seeing ourselves. We realize that all of us are yeah. flawed. All of us are broken. All of us are still that child inside. And it's why Zig and Nola, for me, are dealing with exactly what I'm dealing with. I've buried both my parents. Mm. I'm writing my main character as a mortician. I can't be more obvious about why I'm obsessed with death, right? I mean, <laughs> it's me trying to deal with this loss in my life and Nola trying to deal with that loss in her life. That you know, and, and, and that's what I've been dealing with. And so that's where the characters, you know, she's the lightning rod. Trouble finds her. And, and I feel like, boy, do I understand that, too. And it, that, it's kind of the, the parallel is cool because I lost my father when I was in fourth grade and we were at the funeral home. I started talking to the mortician and he ended up being the source, uh, embalming became the source of this book report that I had to do in fourth grade. So wow. you kind of write what you know, but I, like you said, you're you're in that mindset and that kind of, it, you write what you know. And I think that that's, again, one of the Did reasons. Did you stay in touch with him? I did for, I think, until he retired. He retired 20 years ago now, probably, but yeah. So and what did you just like call him? I'm now I'm fascinated. I'm going to have to ask. Yeah, we questions. no, that's fine. We uh, it was I was had to do a report on something, and so I decided to do embalming because he was kind of talking me. This is you know my dad and everything. Sure. He talked me through the process. Just so you know, here's what we do, and he lent me a couple books on the history of like Abraham Lincoln, first right, person right. embalmed Bombs in the United out. States. So it was kind of fascinating to dig into all this, and everyone else in class is like, it's kind of giving right. me a weird look. It's like okay, I'm doing a report on a dog and i've got embalming and i've got flow charts the but guy you gave me in touch with him and, and and still spoke to him like yeah as a, as a friend or just to like find out more about no it, it was friendly i mean he had this you know eight-year-old nine-year-old kid asking him all these questions he was kind of taken aback by it right. so um yeah he just retired i want to say time's been playing games i feel like we're currently in yeah, the always. 28th month of 2020 yes, but sure. um but uh, to segue back to you since you're the focus <laughs> of all this um the kids books uh that you've written the i am a friend of mine said she is obsessed with these books her child loves the books and you've got they almost remind me of the value tales series that were out louis pasteur and everything like that you've got lucille ball you've got harriet tubman and these great historical characters you're putting in these children's book forms talk a little bit about the history the origin of that idea for you yeah i, I had kids that was it and i had <laughs> kids and i i was tired of my kids looking up to reality tv show stars and people who are famous for being famous and thinking that's a hero I tell my kids all the time that's fame. Being famous is very different than being a hero. And 
I wanted to give them better heroes to look up to, heroes of perseverance and kindness and compassion. And so we started with I'm Amelia Earhart. We mm-hmm. did I'm Abraham Lincoln. Chris Eliopoulos, the amazing comic book artist, is the artist on the books. And these are little, little illustrated kids' books. We did I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Albert Einstein. For my son who loves sports, I was like, forget millionaire overpaid athletes. Here's a good hero for you. Here's I Am Jackie Robinson. Mm. And um, it was interesting. In 2016, as the election was approaching and Donald Trump and Hillary were screaming at each other every night on TV, two of our books started selling more than any others. And they were I Am Martin Luther King Jr. and I Am George Washington. Mm. And it wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. It was that parents and grandparents on both sides were tired of turning on the TV and seeing politicians, but they wanted to show their kids were leaders. Yeah. And we all know there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. And I love the fact that people use our books now to fight back against the cynicism they see in the world. They build libraries of real heroes for their kids, their grandkids, their nieces, and their nephews. Um, and our newest books are I Am Malala Yousafzai, the girl who won the youngest to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. When the Taliban didn't want her to learn, didn't want mm. her to read, didn't want her to be educated, she fought against them and then fought for other girls to be educated. And um, Muhammad Ali, who mm. stands for the idea you got to fight for what you believe. That's what it says in the back of his book. I, the moral lesson's always on the back. I will fight for what I believe, and I want my daughter to have that lesson, and I want my sons to have that lesson. I love that people like your friend use those books to give their kids something a little better to look up to. The litany of books you've done from from fiction novels to historical tomes, uh, advice books, uh, and then comic books, children's books. You don't really have a wheelhouse, it seems like. You kind of are all over the board, which is fantastic that you do all of them so well. I'm sure most authors would be a little jealous of the fact that you can write in you know 30 different genres across and then all of them be a success. What do you attribute that to? We're going to take a quick commercial break, come right back, and we'll talk more with New York Times bestselling author Brad Meltzer, please stand by. Hi, this is Shannon Farnan, the original voice of Wonder Woman, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Welcome back to Geek to Me Radio. Want to make sure we tell you about our official movie sponsor, Marcus Theaters. MarcusTheaters.com is the website. If you're looking to get out there and see a great film in the best possible surroundings, Marcus Theaters and, of course, Movie Tavern have you covered. They've got uh, all the movies that are out right now. If you, it, it, There's never a bad time to see movies, but you kind of now I feel like with the pandemic is mostly at an end. Uh, I feel like movies are really making a comeback. And I know the convenience of being able to sit at your home and just pull it up on demand, not the same as seeing it in a theater with a bunch of other people enjoying the same movie, laughing at the good parts, crying at the sad parts, that excitement that you feel when something huge happens on screen and that electric being in with the crowd. Plus, not to mention the popcorn, the fountain drinks, the snow caps, all that kind of good stuff. If you want to get out and see one of these movies, do it at Marcus Theaters. If you're seeing Morbius, if you're seeing the Batman, if you're seeing everything everywhere all the time, whatever you plan to see, do it in the best possible surroundings. Go to the website, Marcus 
MarcusTheaters.com. You can book your tickets right there. You can find the location of the Marcus Theaters or Movie Tavern closest to you. It's a one-stop shop right there on the website. And if you're looking to do something special, maybe you've got a graduation party coming up you want to kind of gear up for. Maybe it's a birthday, whatever it is. Book a private theater at one of these Marcus or Movie Tavern locations. I think they start as low as $99, depending on your location. And you and 20 of your friends can just hang out and see a movie. It's a great thing to do for a special occasion. Or anytime, really. I'm, I'm a movie fan. I would go do that just because, hey, this movie's coming out. Let's go see it at a private theater. But uh, Marcus Theaters is definitely the best place to see these movies. Once again, check out the website, MarcusTheaters.com, for the best movie-going experience in the galaxy. Before we took that last break, we were chatting with New York Times bestselling author Brad Meltzer, and I'd asked him, with all these different genres, he's done kids' books, he's done New York Times bestsellers, he's done comic books. We chatted a little bit about all that, but I was wondering... How it is he's writing so successfully across all these multiple genres? I, you know, I, I don't write any of them differently. Mm. They're not different genres to me. They're a good story is a good story. I can see a story, and I'll see you know I'll see a story about George Washington having his own secret spy ring, um, which he really did during the Revolutionary War, made of regular people that no one knew about. I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to put that in a thriller. Mm. And then I was like, wait a minute. I could tell the nonfiction story of that. There's more to scratch here. So I did a nonfiction book about it. Then I was like, I want my kids to like George Washington, so I wrote a kid's book about him. I, there are lines in each of those books that all three of those books, I use the same lines. Hmm. One's for fiction, one's for nonfiction, one's for children. But a good story is a good story. And obviously, there's less metaphor in a children's story, or I have to use dialogue that may be you know, a little more simplifying concepts, but... But I tell the same story, mm. and and my belief is is when we when we when we think that those genres have to be markedly different, that you have to use a different voice or a different seriousness, or we take ourselves so seriously, um, I just don't believe that at all. I think you have to talk to people where they are and and get rid of your snobbery. And the same thing in the comic books. I've done history in there too. I, I think uh, I just kind of believe that all we want is just someone to tell us a good story. And talking about good stories, uh, Identity Crisis blew a lot of people away talking about the comic books again. Um, I loved it because I went back and I'm like, I don't remember. And I went back and got those issues of JLA from you know 164 to 166. Was that, I mean, was that a, you read this comic book series and were like, oh, you know what? Here would be a good place to insert this whole thing. That idea for that was brilliant. It fit well with the comic book pattern. Where did that whole storyline kind of, you can talk a little bit about the yeah. origin. Yeah, no, I mean... Identity crisis came about because Dan DiDio, was, it was a response to 9-11. Mm. And, and it wasn't my response, actually. It came to me, Dan approached me and said, after I'd done Green Arrow, he said, um, you know, after 9-11, we would always see soldiers and police officers and, fi- and you know, firemen and firewomen, we'd see them in their uniforms, and we'd go up to them after 9-11. This will really date us all, but we'd say thank you. Just for wearing that uniform, thank you. Even the police, think, think of everything that's going on with the police today, but we would see cops on the street and be like, thank you for risking your life. And Dan said to me, you know, every day we realized, and it took 9-11, sadly, to make it happen, that every day they put on their uniforms, they were risking their lives. People finally understood that. Yeah. And he said, I want that feeling for our heroes. Our heroes every hmm. day, were, they're racing off into, you know, into this danger, but we don't really feel like there's a threat. We don't feel like they're risking their lives. It's just we took it for granted, the same way we took police officers for granted and fire people for granted and military members for granted. So can you do like a, you know, a small emotional story that gives us that back again? 
And the truth was, Identity Crisis was never meant to be a big crossover event. It was never meant to be even a big event. He said to me, it was a small, emotional story. I wrote the entire thing. I, I handed it in issue by issue, but I wrote it all in one sitting, like hmm. a novel. And then when Dan got it, he was like, oh, we this is this is, this is is bigger than I thought I was asking you for, and now we're going to make it. And so it was all, I was like, you do what you want with it. <laughs> I'm like, you do what you want. But the answer to your question about that just, Justice League books, um, I, I to this moment have not reread that book. That was all in my memory. Wow. I, was, I just have one of those memories where like I read that when I was 13, 12 years old, and I always was like, that part makes no sense, and it was just in my brain. So all those references you see throughout Identity Crisis, I didn't look them up. They, they're in my brain. Wow. They've been floating around there for 20, 30 years. That's even more impressive because I went back and <laughs> read that. Like that's those three-issue arc, and I'm like, this fits perfectly. It's genius. So the well, fact I that did, you didn't have to go back and... Right. The only thing I went back to, although I should say this, I didn't read it, but I did go back to see, like, if it was the Wizard and Floronic Man and who was there when, like, mm. Green Lantern... Like, I wanted to know... I need to know who to draw for the artist, but I didn't read it. I knew what it was. Hmm. And I just was like, when I finally, finally wrote the script, I was like, this issue, here's the thing. So Because the, the artist would never know what it was. I was worried. I didn't know if Rags had read that. And and rags, of course, would put up with all of my obscure <laughs> comic book references that were littered throughout. I'd be like, I want this version of, you know, Phobia, and I want this version of Doctor Moon, and I want this one of Captain Boomerang in this costume. Like I was, and the same thing in Justice League. I was, you know, they had moved on to a new version of the Legion of Superheroes, and I was like, you know, Jeff and I were like, we want another version. We want that old Levitz, you know, Gibbon yeah. version. That was the one for us. And so I've been crazy particular about pulling the ones from memory that were the best and talking about uh, you mentioned history too I want to go back and talk about your series uh, on the stolen artifacts and everything which was fascinating to think about you don't even think that they have John F. Kennedy's brain somewhere and things <laughs> know, like that, that and things are being stolen and things like that to me and obviously you're a writer you do conspiracy things and escape stuff that had to have been someone on the inside I can't imagine there's like some wealthy billionaire who's like hiring a leverage style team to break into the National Archives and steal the patent for Wilbur and Orville's plane or whatever. So, first of all, how much research did you do previously? And then, secondly, were you surprised with the reaction that series received? Yeah, you know, the series came about because I was researching a book about George Washington inspiring and working with the National Archives because that's they had the codes mm-hmm. from his firing. They had some of the original codes and things. And when I was in the National Archives... They told me the story that the patent for Orville, uh, the Wright Brothers plane, was missing. Someone had taken it. It was gone. Hmm. And I remember going, what? What do you mean it's gone? How could it be gone? And they said to me, they pointed to a map on the wall. It was, it was the tracking map that John F. Kennedy had marked up by hand during the Bay of Pigs. And they said, you see this map here? And I said, yeah. They said, this map was missing for like 30 years until John F. Kennedy's secretary died. And in her attic, her family went to clean out her house, and in her attic, they found it. And, huh. and she didn't steal it. She just, they basically, Kennedy was like, get it off my desk. So she took it, and she rolled it up, and she threw it in her attic. No one knew at that point you were supposed to submit these things. Hmm. So we were going around for years looking for it, and then someone said, look, my grandma died, and look, we found the attic. And he said, that's how we, I said, is that how you get things back? He's like, that's how we get things back. We, huh. we, go, to, we go to antique shows. We go to histor- history shows and gun shows. And we put up wanted posters, and we say, this is what we're looking for. You got any idea where it is? And I was like, I got a better idea. I got a better idea. I said, what if I use a TV show as a modern-day wanted poster, and I tell the stories of these items? And they were like, that would be awesome. Thank you. 
Um, and it worked. And it actually worked. It was the miracle. The History Channel, I remember huh. saying to me, they said, are you going to find anything, Brad? And I said, we're going to find something. I said, I have no idea what we're going to find. That's the only thing. I said, whatever you think we're going to find that's easy to find, we'll never find. But the thing we think is never going to come back, that's the thing that's going to show up. And I, and I meant everything but the 9-11 flag. I was like, that's probably never going to come back because it's too amazing. Right. And the irony of all ironies is, is that's what we found. We actually really? found the flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero in that famous photograph. Yeah. Um, it went missing 24 hours later. No one knew where it was. And four days after the first episode of Lost History aired, a man walked into a fire station in Everett, Washington, in Washington State, and said, I saw the show Lost History, and uh, I have the 9-11 flag. I want to bring it back. And I, we offered him $10,000 reward. He never took the reward. Mm. He did it for the good of you know, just history. And I got to unveil that on the anniversary of 9-11. It's now currently in the 9-11 Museum wow. on display. And I can't, in my wildest imagination, imagine that that moment's going to happen. Right? It can't be. But there it was. Hmm. And, again, in keeping history, uh, the Lincoln that you had written, that's being announced to be made into a series. Uh, that's for TV. Yeah. I mean, Netflix has, has optioned the rights I've optioned, you know, how many books, and they've never made anything. So we have a great director who's doing the Marvels. Nia DaCosta is an amazing oh, yes. director. She's the new director on Captain Marvel 2, the Marvels. Um, I love working with her, but we got to wait for the script to come in. And if the script is good, we'll make a show. And if not, we won't. And it's just nice to even just be here and kind of being able to interact with amazing screenwriters who we have on it. And I know we're coming up on the last bit of our time here, uh, staying in that TV vein if this was to be optioned, do you already have someone in mind who would play Zig and who would play Nola? Yeah, you know, the lightning rod for me, I can't see anybody. It's like mm. saying who would play your mom in the movie of your life, right? Like you just see your mom. Jennifer could, Coolidge. But. Right, of course. Well, Jennifer <laughs> Coolidge is fantastic, by the way. Um, she might play my mom too, actually, now that I think about it. But, uh, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Um, but, I, you know, it would never really be your mom, right? right? It's always like someone else. I see Zig and Nola as real people. I've hmm. spent, I spent, you know, six years, seven years of my life with them in my head. So they're just these kind of no one will fit the bill. But everyone has their own ideas. I feel like everyone has a different idea for them. I, I can see nothing but what's in my imagination. And uh, we've wrapped up our time. Brad Meltzer, The Lightning Rod. You can get this as of March 8th. Anywhere you get your books, we always recommend. Please shop small businesses, shop locally. Bar that. If you can't do it, obviously you can get it on the Amazon. Uh, we'll have a link to that if you're listening to this after the fact in the show notes. Brad Meltzer, an absolute delight to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And Left Bank Books has signed copies. I should say that. Perfect. Make sure you get them down there at Left Bank Books. Thank you again. Thanks so much. That's going to do it. My thanks again to Brad Meltzer. Phenomenal individual. Just had a blast talking with him. I'm very appreciative that he made time on his stop through St. Louis here. We had a nice chat at the uh, hotel airport Marriott and just kind of sat down and talked to him for a while. Super nice guy. And make sure you follow him on Twitter and Instagram and make sure you get out and check out the lightning rod in stores. Now the second book in the Zig and Nola trilogy. We're going to take another quick commercial break. We'll come back and start talking with director John Glenn about his career, about his five bond films. He's directed getting started in industry and more here on geek to me radio. Stand by. Hi, I'm Jim Pinnock, and you're listening to geek to me Radio. Get in touch with your inner geek. And we're back. 
geek to me radio make sure you are following me on twitter and instagram at geek to me radio please go to the facebook page facebook.com slash geek to me radio give the page a like and of course make sure you check out our youtube we're also on twitch.tv and you can follow us on those we do the live broadcasts on sunday nights for our live show on the big 550 ktrs we stream those live on those platforms on youtube and on instagram and on twitch so if you follow us there you can catch our live shows and kind of see the studio setup it's a lot of fun we've had a lot of interaction with people watching the radio show live which is kind of a weird thing but uh you know because it's radio and i'm i'm an old school radio guy but having the video that was all my executive producer joey v's idea let's get some video involved in that and it's it's really kind of been fun we get to actually to see the other guests who i'm talking to and you the watcher get to see the other guests we just had susan eisenberg dan reba and rich fogel talking about the justice league animated series was able to see them on screen it was a lot of fun you were able to see them we got a lot of texts coming in and the chat boards and everything like that filled up so make sure you give us a follow on youtube subscribe to the page just find geek to me radio on youtube and of course if you would subscribe slash follow on twitch as well we greatly appreciate that and of course obviously my thanks to joey v my executive producer who always makes these shows look and sound as good as they do i wouldn't still be doing this without him true story wouldn't have happened if he hadn't uh always been there to kind of push me further and keep the show going so shout out to joey v my next guest needs no introduction. It's a, he's a, a director who's done five Bond films. He holds the record currently. No one has directed more Bond films. All the 80s Bond films, basically. He also was a second unit director on her, on her, on, on her Majesty's Secret Service. I was very thrilled to sit down and talk to this guy, especially since this year marks the 60th anniversary of James Bond. We've got John Glenn for you right now. Right now we're talking with legendary filmmaker and five-time James Bond movie director, John Glenn. John, I'm very appreciative of your time this afternoon. James, very pleased to talk to you, too. A lot of cool anniversaries coming up this year. Uh, Last year we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of For Your Eyes Only. This year is the 60th anniversary of Bond, and I believe in just a few months you'll be turning 90 yourself. A lot of cool things coming up this year. Yeah, it's true. So we've got a whole lot of anniversaries to celebrate. <laughs> so I know uh, the last James Bond movie came out, uh, No Time to Die. I know the, the Broccoli's have been very nice. They've actually had you at premieres well after you've stopped directing for them. Uh, what Did you have a chance to see No Time to Die yet? I have seen it, yes. It was a very good film. And uh, it, it, it goes back a lot in the history of the Bond movies. Uh, which was very pleasant to, you know, to hear on Her Majesty's Secret Service music played again. Yes. Uh, we have all the time in the world. You know, it was, it was wonderful, wonderful song, and, uh, uh, you know, they used it well. Obviously, that was your first Bond movie, second unit director and editor on on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, that kind of got your feet in the water of the James Bond world, and you were off and running from there. That's right. I mean, you know, I, I know that initially um, that film with George Lazenby wasn't a huge success, but it certainly um, has gained more fame as time has gone on. And um, when you look back at that film, it was one of the best books, one of the best Ian Fleming books, and uh, it had some wonderful action in it, which I did, modestly speaking. <laughs> but, uh, I think the film, um, the film stands up very well over the years. Absolutely. And uh, George yeah, I mean, is still going strong. Yeah, I just I just saw that he uh, kind of 
tongue-in-cheek reprised his role as 007 for a series of commercials and everything like that. It's kind of fun to see him getting back into it, as it were. Yeah. I tell you, I think he's really, ever since he gave up the role, um, he's more or less been increasingly popular, and uh, I think he makes quite a good living out of being James Bond. <laughs> That's uh, It's nice work if you can get it, right? <laughs> That's for sure. And you were often known because of your work on, you did the whole bobsled run, uh, you filmed that part of it, and then that amazing sky jump off the mountain for The Spy Who Loved Me. You were kind of affectionately known as the ski director during uh, your time in, in 007 World. <laughs> well, it is strange when you think when I first started on the snow scenes, I couldn't ski, and I had to learn to ski pretty quickly, but... Um, <laughs> Since then, of course, I've been involved in a lot of ski sequences. And I must say I love the snow, and it's a, a wonderful medium for doing action scenes. And um, we've got some good films where we've got fabulous um, ski scenes. I mean, uh, on Majesty's Secret Service, I made some wonderful contacts. Uh, my skiing cameraman was uh, Willie Bogner. Uh, you know, it was fantastic. He had skis pointed both ends, and he was an Olympic skier. And uh, he had his handheld camera, and uh, he gave us wonderful, absolute wonderful insight into skiing. And, you know, the fact that you put the audience in the driving seat, he was quite unique. And uh, all those, I've used him on an, almost as many snow scenes as I can remember. <laughs> And there's always that, I seem like James Bond's either swimming and in a Caribbean setting, or he's in the snow and he's skiing, and I loved License to Kill. He gets to water ski. Uh, that, was a, that whole sequence was great, where he's behind the plane uh, after you know, leaving the boat and everything. That was a fantastic, the underwater scene, skiing behind the yeah, plane, yeah, that was great. Uh, yeah, it's, again, it's unique, isn't it? It's like, uh, I've never seen that done before. A guy water skiing without any water skis, yeah. <laughs> just on the soles of his feet. Must be difficult to do. <laughs> Did you? Was that something? When obviously you've done five movies, as we talked about, uh, you you started directing for your eyes only. Then you did Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. As as a director, when you're asked back for the next one, do you kind of feel the need to kind of okay, we have to ramp up the stunts a little bit? I know you wanted that gritty realism; that was kind of your signature on the films. But was there that kind of a way to raise the bar in your mind, film by film, as far as the stunts and everything? Well, you have to, don't you? I think you. I mean, on the Bond movies, certainly that I did, uh, we never wanted to repeat ourselves. We always tried to be original with our action, and it's not, not an easy thing to do to be original. Um, I mean, I was brought up, as you say, I'm going to be 90 soon, I was brought up during the Second World War, and um, we were feasted on uh, Saturday morning pictures where we were watching the Buster Keaton films, all those old, wonderful old filmmakers, pioneers, and they did some pretty good stuff. And um, just like we shot, you know, we didn't have digital technology um, on my films. Mm -hmm. So you had to do it for real. And I think it shows on the screen. I think you know when you look at it, it's done for real. It's not digitally enhanced. I mean, you can do wonderful things with digital, but it's taken an awful lot of the fun out of it. Right. Yeah, there's that, like you said, that realism to it. I know the uh, the issues you had on For Your Eyes Only where... 
Carol Bouquet couldn't go underwater for one of the scenes. And that, I'm sure, was a, a feat of engineering. You had to totally reinvent how you did the scene with her and Roger Moore tied together being drugged behind the boat. Yeah, well, that's the magic of filmmaking, isn't it? That you, you know, you, um, you put the bubbles in on a, on a you, you photograph the, the, the actors. I mean, most of those scenes are done with a second unit. Uh, with doubles, uh, but when you come to do the close shots, you do the close shots of the actors, and you make a little mark on a piece of paper somewhere on the viewfinder, and then you you put the bubbles in without exposing the film. So that, uh, when the film's exposed, uh, processed the next day, you get the the actors with the bubbles coming out of their mm. mouth and a wind machine blowing their hair up in the air, and uh, you're there. You know, it, it's magic. <laughs> And you've worked with some great actors, obviously. Roger Moore, famously, I think you did 11 pictures total with Roger Moore between all your work uh, editing and second unit directing yeah. and actually directing. So uh, I'm sure you developed quite a great rapport with him by the time of You to a Kill happened. Yeah, we love Roger and uh, we miss him, but sadly he passed away yeah. and one lives forever. But uh, he was a wonderful person, wonderful, generous personality, um, very modest um, very kind to everyone on the crew. Uh, it was a real pleasure to work with him. Um, you can't really say that much about most modern-day filming, I don't think, but uh, we, we certainly had a ball. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I heard a story that when uh, Albert Broccoli brought you in to direct For Your Eyes Only, you were kind of given a, 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 a decree to find a new James Bond. Evidently, Roger hadn't re-upped at that point, and so you actually started testing yeah. people. Yeah, that's one to, uh, I mean, I must have been quite naive, but uh, when Cubby uh, said to me, your first job is to find a new James Bond, uh, first I was a little disappointed because, you know, I like Roger so much, I've worked with him so often. And um, I did conduct a worldwide search for a, a possible James Bond, but I didn't realize that I think it was Cubby playing poker, you know, with the ah. idea. And uh, I think that he secretly wanted Roger to come back, but he was trying to keep his demands within a, within reason. So, um, but I fell for it. Cubby <laughs> <laughs> was quite a smart cookie, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and with uh, for your eyes only, we just mentioned last year was the 40th anniversary. That's uh, between for your eyes only and License to Kill. If I'm not mistaken, those are the only two Bond films to ever mention. Tracy, in one way or another, was that kind of uh, your little homage to On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yeah, probably. Um, I think a lot of, um, you know, the history of the Bonds is so so fantastic, really, when you think about it. I mean, um, you know, Ian Fleming created this character and has been enhanced by various people and directors and writers uh, throughout the series to become what it's become, the, you know, the most successful film probably series ever made. Um, I remember talking to Cubby about it and we were trying to say what what was so special about Bonds which make them what they are, unique. And uh, we both sort of said, well, you know, it's it's the, the original Fleming uh, conception of, of Bond, but... Somehow it's got ingrained with the audiences all over the world, no matter what their nationalities are. It's, I suppose it's primarily because they're action-based. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, the words the words don't matter quite so much you know, with a Bond movie. I think it's <laughs> it's like a piece of music. You know, you have a a wonderful action scene to start, then people just settle back and down again. You have a bit of dialogue, and then off you go again, and you gradually build up to a, a fantastic climax. So there's no secret, really. It's just you entertain people. And just on your films alone, uh, the, in the Bond lore alone there are a lot of great villains but your films had some great ones as well out of your five films did you have a villain that you thought was just superb obviously the actors are great takes nothing away from christopher walken or lewis jordan or anyone else but did you have an actor who or a a villain that you kind of like this is a good bond villain well i think robert darby in uh, license to kill uh, was a fantastic villain i mean he He's a gentle guy, and but he looks like a thug, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, he was one, He's a wonderful actor, and um, I must say, I, uh, he's a good, very good friend of mine, and um, he was very cooperative and very keen to make a, you know, a Bond film. And uh, we in fact did some tests. We were testing some potential girls for, you know, the lady, leading ladies. And uh, we we did some tests at Cubby's house in Beverly Hills, and um, Roger uh, Robert Darby was dressed up in his dinner suit as James Bond. He played opposite the girls, and I must say he did a pretty good job. <laughs> I said to Cubby afterwards, I said I think he'd make quite a good James Bond. I mean, um, he maybe wasn't as good looking as he needed to be, but uh, he was certainly an imposing figure. And they've talked now uh, with, you know, obviously Daniel Craig is now done. They've wrapped his entire series into a nice bow. Uh, they, there's talk about a female taking over the 007 role going forward. But I, when I think about it, it James Bond kind of needs to be James Bond. We've got great female spy movies like uh, like Anna. Uh, we've got Atomic Blonde and Salt and things like that. I don't know if there's a need to do a female 007. What are your thoughts as far as that goes? And we're going to take one more commercial break. This will be the last one, I swear. We'll come back and talk more with John Glenn. We'll get that answer to that question from him as well. You're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Please stand by. James Bond Jr. chases around the world. Hi, this is Michelle Nichols, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. Welcome back to the show, dear listeners. Hopefully you're enjoying the show so far. Make sure you're following us on all our social media platforms. Uh, we always try to put these shows up online fairly quickly. If you miss our live show, Joey's great about getting these shows up on the on the uh, website. So go to geek2meradio.com. Website's just a little over a year old now. And we always make sure you check out the website because that's a uh, great place to interact with us. And kind of it's a launching platform to all our other sites. Want to make sure we tell you about... Bugs Comics and Games. Bugs Comics is our official comic book sponsor. BugsComicsAndGames.com. Give their Facebook page a like as well. It's Facebook.com slash BugsComicsAndGames. If you're in the greater St. Louis area and looking for a great place to get some comic books, Bugs is the place to go right there off of Bryan Road in O'Fallon. Make sure you join the Avengers Club. That way you start saving money on your weekly comic book purchases because that's one of the things we all like to do is save money. And Larry over at Bugs has a way to do just that by joining their Avengers Club. You start getting discounts on your current issues, back issues, supplies, your games, whatever it is. 
And if you're listening outside the listening area, the greater St. Louis, St. Charles area, maybe you can't physically make it to Bugs Comics and Games, you can go to the website and you can purchase right from there. You can also join online. We've got some out-of-town listeners. I know there's a gentleman, I can't remember his name right off, I should have written it down, guy in Colorado buying things from Bugs Comics and Games. He's joined the Avengers Club. He's getting his discounts and they're just shipping it right to his door. That's a great thing you can do too if you're outside the greater St. Louis St. Charles area. Once again, check out the website to see the variant comics they have up for sale, the back issues that you can buy right there. And of course, if you're here, make sure you swing by, check out the store, and please give their Facebook page a like as well. BugsComicsAndGames.com. Very proud to have them as our official comic book sponsor here on geek to me Radio. Before we took that last break, we were chatting with John Glenn and I'd asked him, uh, he's directed five Bond films. He's a Bond fan. He knows his Bond. So I asked him the question people are asking, should Hollywood make James Bond a woman? Well, I, speaking for myself, I mean, I have no influence on what they're doing these days. But uh, I think um, they tried it years ago doing a female type of Bond. It didn't really work. Um our man Flint, for instance, was um, uh, with another, you know, was another slant on bomb, and that didn't really work. Uh, I, I personally think that it's got to be a man. Uh, it could be a black man. It could be a white man. Who knows? But um, uh, there's some wonderful actors out there that would love to do the part, and uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, maybe a black man take the part in the future. Maybe Idris Elba, even though he says he thinks he's too old, he's in that perfect age range. I think he'd make a great James Bond. Yeah, I think he would have been very good, I think. But, I, you know, you've got to think ahead for about, you know, five films, maybe yeah. three at minimum. So you're talking about seven years or so. You've got to think then that you want someone who's going to stay the course and look good, you know. Um, but there are others out there uh, coming up all the time. You've done a lot of great work throughout film, on not just the Bond films, but the, all the other stuff you've done. Have, has there ever been a movie that you were offered, you passed on directing, and later on were like, oh, I wish I had done that project after all, or has that never been a thing? Well, no, I don't know that. Um, I think once you you get labeled with a, a Bond, I mean, I, having directed five Bonds, I think people get the impression that bonds are so extravagant and they cost so much money and you throw money away and all this stuff. But it's not true. I mean, the bond, bond films aren't very much different to doing a TV series. You, I mean, you spend a lot of money on your sets and so forth, but you have to work very efficiently. Uh, and, the, uh, and the cost of the bond movies has gone up hugely since I left. But um, that's a lot with inflation. But I think... Um, I think the point is that now that um, you know you you have to make the money, you have to be economically minded in a sense. You have to spend the money where it counts. Um, no, I, I you know I think we did pretty well with our films. There, you know, we more or less didn't. The budget more or less stayed constant for about ten years, which is quite amazing, really. Mm. And uh, you know, we found ways to make the films. We had to go to Mexico because it was cheaper for us to film there. We did, mm-hmm. rather than compromise. And we enjoyed it there. So we've got some wonderful technicians there in, and actors in Mexico. Fantastic. So it was a good experience. My friend who's also has a radio program in Atlanta, 
he uh, asked me to say, ask you about Christopher Columbus, the discovery, because when you look at that movie, you got to direct Marlon Brando for crying out loud, which was an amazing thing, I'm sure. But great cast, Tom Selleck, Rachel Ward, again, Robert Davi and uh, Benicio Del Toro were both in it from License to Kill. Uh, what, talk a little bit about your experience making Christopher Columbus, the discovery. Well, that was a very enjoyable uh, experience. I mean, we did have money problems making the film. I mean, um, the money was flying in from all over the place. Um, Brian Cook was my assistant director, and uh, one day on the set, the guys arrived from the Middle East with sunglasses and carrying briefcases, and and uh, Brian got on the tannoy and he said, the eagle has landed. <laughs> that was the money. That was the money coming in to keep us going. But um, it was a very enjoyable experience, and uh, I thought it was a good film. And uh, meeting, you know, working with Marlon, I was terrified at first at the prospect. I'd heard so many stories, but in fact, he turned out to be an absolute darling. He was just wonderful, you know, and uh, very cooperative, very inventive. Um, I couldn't have wished for a nicer person. I always like to ask because there, there, people post stuff on IMDb for trivia about movies and things like that. And I've, I've talked to actors and directors before and they said, well, that's not entirely true. There's a trivia about Christopher Columbus on the IMDb page that says Marlon Brando had those really heavy robes on to hide radio equipment because he was being fed his lines sometimes. Is that true or that's is that true. just a... It is, okay. That is true. Uh, yeah, he. I, I fell for it because I didn't know. He didn't confide <laughs> in me what was going on. And uh, the first time I've, I filmed him, uh, there were these long pauses between lines, and I said, uh, okay, we'll go again, uh, Marlon. Uh, can you just speed it up a little bit? And he said, oh, yeah, okay, John. And, of course, he didn't speed it up. He was being fed the lines from the person in the next room. So... <laughs> It didn't you know there were anyway in the editing we we I, I covered it in such a way I could cut out the big gaps but um, yeah he, he he just couldn't remember the lines or he didn't care to remember the lines more likely and I know I've got a brief amount of time here with you I just want to ask you about two other projects if I may you were second unit director on Superman the original 1978 with Christopher Reeve there's that great photo of Roger Moore in the clown makeup from Octopussy. Christopher Reeve came to visit the set because they were doing Superman 3 on the Pinewood Studios. Uh, was that just kind of like your two worlds colliding? You've worked with both these great actors, and now here they are on the set? Well, Christopher Reeve did visit our set quite often. I think he, he was more interested in the pretty girls that we had on our <laughs> set. He didn't have that many on his set, I don't think. Um, but um, he was a lovely man, and... Um, he was a f good friend of Rogers, and um, yeah, he was always welcome on our set. <laughs> <laughs> and then you doing TV as well, obviously directed TV Space Precinct, which was a great series. You did eight episodes of that. Um, talk a little bit about the difference for you, from your standpoint directing TV versus directing a big budget film. Well, I, of course, I was brought up on TV. I mean, um, uh, when TV started, I was, you know, became an editor on TV. I got all my ex editing experience, really, working on Danger Man, which I think was called um, Special Agent or something in America. Uh, it's a different title, but um, um, I, I did about three or four different series of TV, and um, it was great training, you know. You learn to be economical, and you learn your trade. And um, so when you get the big break and you go on um, on the films, uh, 
uh, you, you've learned, you know, you don't make those big mistakes, which could be very costly to your career. You worked with Mariam Dabo on a couple different projects. You've, I think I've, I've read in an interview once before, you said she's one of your very favorite actresses. Was it just the way she takes over a role? Was it how she, uh, how quickly she can absorb her lines? What, what is it about her that kind of elevates her in your status? Well, she was absolutely perfect for the, the film, first film I did with her, which was with, um, with Timothy Dalton. She was supposed to be a sort of naive, sort of young person who was, you know, was doing a job. Um, she was a rather reluctant sniper, shall we say. And she wasn't used to the Western way and all the glamour and the beautiful clothes, etc., etc. So, you know, she, she jumped into that part. And she was very good with action and a lovely person, very cooperative, very easy to work with. And very beautiful. And um, uh, later on, I did a, a, a film in Luxembourg, uh, and I cast her as the leading lady, and uh, she did proud, did be proud. She's a great girl. And one last question. Uh, with obviously kind of things up in the air now, they're looking for a new James Bond to replace Daniel Craig. You've retired, but if they were to say, you know, if, uh, if Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson were to come to you and say, John, we'd love for you to direct one more film, do you have it in you? Is it something you'd come out of retirement to do, or is it kind of like, nope, I'm, I'm good where I am? I'm, I'm good where I am, quite honestly. <laughs> I'm, you know, as I say, I, the Bond films had my best years, and uh, I was very inventive. Um, I had a great imagination, and uh, I, I did with the films I'm put my tra- my stamp on them uh, and I'm proud of them and I, I'm quite happy to look back on them now and say well that's it that I, had a, I had a great time making those movies and they were some fantastic films indeed uh, this has been an absolute delight for me to be able to talk to you I'm very appreciative of your time John Glenn thank you so much thank you James bye bye that's going to do it. Another show in the books. My thanks again to New York Times bestselling author Brad Meltzer. Make sure you get out there and purchase the lightning rod from your local bookstore. And director John Glenn, a true legend. Five Bond films under his belt and among other great projects as well. Before we leave, I want to make sure we tell you about our premier sponsor, the City of St. Charles, the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau. You know them from the website Discover St. Charles. That's discoverstcharles.com. A great place to go visit. Uh, whether you're out and about, you want to get out and see some stuff, you want to get out and try some new food, you want to get out and just be outdoors. Because I know between a huge pandemic and, of course, bad weather, you want to get out, you want to explore, you want to be outside, get the sunshine. Great place to visit St. Charles. If you're outside the greater St. Louis, St. Charles area, if you're listening to this and you want to plan a trip, my goodness, I cannot recommend St. Charles highly enough. All sorts of places to stay, lots of places to eat, and plenty to do, plenty to see. Start your trip at the website, Discover stcharles.com that's discoverstcharles.com we'll make sure you start your trip there plan your trip and see all the things there are to see and do come visit the area a great place and of course the very first sponsor that came on with geek to me radio and they've been with us ever since then very proud to have them as our premier sponsor here on the show the show would not be possible without them so make sure you check out their website and, of course, come and visit. And if you pop in the Visitor Center, make sure you tell them you heard about them on geek to me Radio. We'd appreciate that as well. Once again, my thanks to Joey B for making everything sound as good as it does. Check out the live show every Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on the Big 550 KTRS, streaming online, KTRS.com. And, of course, if you follow me on Twitch and YouTube, you'll catch the show there. Until next week, my friends. When you make it
Kids, are your parents about to buy you a shiny new toy from Amazon? Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Well, don't be selfish. Share some of that money with us. Before going on Amazon, make sure to type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. It will look just like Amazon.com, except it'll say referral geek to me radio up top. And then when you check out, a tiny percentage will go to support the show without costing you one cent more. So before your parents get you that gizmo, gadget, or widget, make sure they type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. Bit.ly slash geek to me. Bit.ly slash geek to me.